This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 258th episode of Awards Chatter the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast, which is now but one of four podcasts that comprise the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network, the others being It Happened in Hollywood, Behind the Screen, and TV's Top 5. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a filmmaker from Mexico who is not only one of the key figures of new Mexican cinema, but also one of the most accomplished and admired filmmakers in the world. The director of 1995's A Little Princess, 1998's Great Expectations, 2001's Itumama Tambien, 2004's Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, 2006's Children of Men, 2013's Gravity, for which he won the Best Director Oscar, and 2018's Roma, a black-and-white Spanish-language masterpiece inspired by his own childhood and the women who raised him, which he also wrote, produced, shot, and edited— and which is now poised to become Netflix's first Best Picture Oscar nominee and to propel him to his second Best Director Oscar in just six years, the great Alfonso Cuaron. Over the course of our conversation on the Raleigh Studios lot in Hollywood, the 57-year-old and I discussed all of the above, plus much more, including why he was kicked out of film school, how he, Guillermo del Toro, and Alejandro González Iñárritu became the Three Amigos, and Emmanuel Chivo Lubezki became, in essence, their honorary fourth, how 9-11 influenced the direction of his career, why he makes films spanning such a wide range of genres and scales, how he feels about Netflix and its move into theatrical exhibition, and what his thoughts are on the man who said Mexico is, quote, not sending their best, close quote, to America, Donald Trump. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Alfonso, thank you so much for doing this. Appreciate it. Thank you. So always just begin with a few basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? Oh, is that kind of interview? I feel that, like when I, I've been taken to the police. That's just like, <laughs> Are you a cop? I cannot tell you yes or no. <laughs> My name is Alfonso Cuaron. I was born in Mexico City in 61. And your folks? I mean, we get a sense of it because Roma, of course, is largely autobiographical, but just for somebody who hasn't seen it yet, what did your parents do? My dad was a physician. He was a doctor in a specialty called nuclear medicine. And my mom was, by profession, she was a biochemist. Mm -hmm. But in the film, you see her transition of dropping that. And you've said in an interview with my colleague Stephen Galloway once that she became a witch? Well, yeah, because, you know, she was a chemist 
pharmacobiochemist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. After that, after the events of the film, years after she did a master in in philosophy, mm-hmm. and then it was kind of the blend of the two things, the natural blend, I guess, between philosophy and biochemistry, that is, uh, she became my witch. There yeah. you go. For you, it sounds like the, from what I was able to read, the key thing in realizing that you wanted to be a director, sure, partly going to movies and going, I read you were trying to check off every theater in Mexico City, but also seeing the making of documentaries of certain films, is that when you sort of first realized that there was a director behind the movies that you loved? Yes, I always knew that there was a director, but it was kind of all of a blur. You know, you're a kid and you play. If we were playing soldiers, I was with my cousins and they were, you know, everybody just make believe playing that you're you're a soldier in a war. But in my head, I was playing of a movie, a war movie, you know. And sometimes I even tried to stage things that were. It was very annoying for my cousins. Yeah. <laughs> But the, the role of the director was very abstract. I didn't know the difference between the writer, the actor, the director. Nowadays, you have all this behind the scenes. In those days, it was it, it was very random for you to see those, that stuff. It was not it was not very often. And I saw one documentary of the making of Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, mm-hmm. uh, and I think I think it came right at the time of the release of the film. Mm-hmm. That was a big revelation. Because uh, there was George George Hill talking about his craft. And I was like, whoa, that's what I want to do. And the same year, maybe weeks or months apart, there was one about Sergio Leone. Mm -hmm. And so, funny enough, it was two Westerns. But it was all the process behind that I got very fascinated and all the preparation of each moment. And how George George Hill would talk about his choices in terms of what he was trying to convey. And so... That became your focus for the rest of your childhood, I guess. You go off to eventually, your, with your mother's blessing, go off to film school, but you had to also have a backup option? That's correct. I have to say, even before that, those documentaries, I wanted to do films. It's just that it was very abstract what it was. And then after, yeah, then I was very clear. I wanted to make films. I wanted to be a director. But in Mexico, it was very, it was not a prosperous industry at that time. It was actually very difficult. And it also is a different generation in which cinema is something that is so far away. You know, the industry is so far away. And also it was this white elephant that it was so impossible to find and so difficult to access. You knew about all this technique that was so complicated. And yeah, when I decided, I always said I want to do films. First, I tried to look into the chance because I was a fan of Spielberg and and Scorsese. And so I explored the possibility of NYU or USC, but my family could not afford it. Then actually, I I was about to go on a scholarship to the Soviet Union because they had a good school there. But it didn't, you know, it, it didn't happen. And I ended up in the film school in Mexico. Like the top one. Well, there were only two schools then. <laughs> it's not that there's a top. And it was, right. uh, at that time, I don't know what the top would mean. Right, right. It was it was very chaotic. But my mom, she was very concerned that studying film, I was not going to be able to, to earn my living. And says, you can go to, you can study film as long 
as you study a career mm -hmm. parallel to studying film. Then I chose philosophy as if that was going to <laughs> pay, you know, bills, pay yeah. the bills. <laughs> so one of your classmates at National Autonomous University of Mexico, who I think you even knew well before that, was Chivo Lubeski, right? Yes. How did you guys first meet? We met in the pretty much in the teen party circle. Yeah. <laughs> Mexico City at that time was like really an amazing paradise for cine clubs. Mm -hmm. Before the access of all these Blu-rays and all this easy access that you have nowadays to, to film, mm -hmm. those days it was the way of seeing films that were not being released. It was just the cine clubs. And if you want to see the films that were happening in other places of the world, it was the cine clubs. And Mexico had so many of them. And also the different embassies. They have their own, you know, the French Institute. Yeah. You know, they have uh, their own, they fall, they have their own for French films. And the great thing is that because Mexico didn't break relationships with the Eastern Bloc, mm -hmm. it was the only Latin American country that didn't, we had an amazing cultural exchange with with the countries of the, the Eastern Bloc. Yeah. So we would get all these amazing films from Poland and from Czechoslovakia yeah. at the time, yeah. from the Soviet Union. So it was a very vibrant thing. And in this circle of cine clubs, I would always bump into, into Chivo, right. you know, and he's two years younger than me. And the thing is that there was this specific cine club that it was Saturdays and Sundays. But you knew that if you would go to the eight o'clock show, at the end is where you will hook to the party of the night. <laughs> and it was great because you will see the film. Right that it was always like a steady program. Every month there was one Kurosawa, one Berman, one Fellini, together with cinema of the 70s in, right. in the U.S. and stuff like that. And then you will, you will see the film, and the party was as much as a party as a place of discussion of the film. And that's how I met Chivo. And, and he was at that time already planning to be a DP, and you were planning to be a director? Chivo at that time was a bass player in a rock band. <laughs> So uh, we, we didn't, he, he loved cinema and film, but also we talked so much about music. Yeah. yeah. You know, and it was, then I started, I enrolled to the film school and I was very happy because they only admitted 20 students every yeah. year. I was very lucky and I didn't have any family connections yeah, or yeah. whatever, you know. And then two years later, he came along. She, he came along, yeah. Well, so your time in film school, it sounds like was a pretty tumultuous period for a lot of reasons. I mean, when you were just 20, right, your girlfriend became pregnant with Jonas? Yes, that's correct. And then now you better make some money at the same time as being in film school. So for whatever, I guess four or five years of film school, you're at the same time doing jobs on the outside to pay the bills? Yeah, and that was a point in which doing those jobs were more, that was more important than going to film school yeah. because, you know, you had a responsibility. It was a complicated time. Then the other thing is you and, I think, Chivo got kicked out of film school. Yes, we were. Why was that? Well, again, now it's a great film school, by the way. But at that time, it was a very chaotic film school. It, was not, it didn't have really a structure. Teachers will come and go. You know, there was a handful of students that I think they really care about film. But it was taken more by student groups with more political agenda, more than really film in which there was really not a vision about cinema. It was all about the political statement and 
and using the film school as a platform to do documentaries or whatever about very bad documentaries about <laughs> current issues and stuff. Right. There was a, no, a younger generation. Most of them were way older than us. Mm -hmm. so they were on, over the 30s. And there was just only like a handful of us that were still teenagers yeah. when we started. And we all shared this thing about film. And we didn't look down to Hollywood, for instance. Mm -hmm. You know, for, for this other student group, Hollywood was the imperialistic enemy and all of that <laughs> stuff. And, you know, and when talking about Hollywood, we're talking about American cinema. Yeah, I yeah. mean, from, yes, Hollywood, like uh, Scorsese and Spielberg and... Uh, but also talking about Casavetes yeah. and, and, and going back, talking about, you know, all the great American cinema from the 30s, 40s, 50s. And so we were pretty much at odds with everyone. And also we started missing school a lot. <laughs> Me working. Right. Uh, some others just going to... It was much better going to watch a movie than, right, right. than sometimes going just to the film school. Right. And yeah, I think, I think it's a combination of, the, of two things. Yeah, the school was not great, and probably there was a lot of incompetence and not structure. But truth of the matter, I guess, that we also were a bunch of brats, arrogant <laughs> brats, you know? Like, right. And then that got kicked us Came off. Came to a head. So some of those jobs you were doing on the outside, I know you're working your way up to being an assistant director, not yet a director, but I was looking at some of the ones that you were an assistant director on. Gabi, a true story, ended up getting an Oscar nomination for the supporting actress. That was a Norma Leandro. Yeah, yes. major yeah, was, major movie. Uh, and Luis Mandoki is one of the people that I consider a mentor. Yeah, no, this yes. so these were you know you're working as an AD on some major movies, but I think it seems like in order to get a chance to actually direct for yourself, the first thing was a anthology series where you also met Guillermo del Toro. That is correct. Let me give you a funny fact yeah, of, of Gabi. Please. Yeah. Okay. So in Gabby, I'm hired to be the first assistant director. And stupidly, I guess, I hired Chivo to be my second assistant. <laughs> and I have to say, she was the worst second assistant you have ever seen in your life. He couldn't care less about being a second assistant. The director of photography was Lajos Koltai, and that's the reason he accepted to be a second assistant. It was Lajos Koltai that he admired. So instead of doing his job, he was always looking to what Lajos was doing. <laughs> so he was terrible, but I guess that he learned some stuff from Lajos. And yes, and then after many years of doing, I mean, the part of being a scene director was the more consistent part of my career, but the other very consistent one, I was a boom operator mm -hmm. in so many films. I was an editor, assistant editor, as a PA. I did all kinds of jobs. Yeah. And because of working in these films as an assistant director, you start meeting with, getting along with actors and some producers. And eventually I got the opportunity to work in this Hora Marcada, that was a TV show, uh, an anthology, yeah. uh, horror anthology show. Yeah. And that's where I met Guillermo del Toro. And having done that show, you then, I think, seems like you felt, if somebody else is not going to give me a chance to direct a feature, I better figure out a way to create the scenario for me to do that myself. So that's where you go to your brother and say, we got to come up with something? Or what was the root of your first feature film? Yeah, I was. the cool thing about the, these Hora Marcadas is that you could write your own script, direct it, edit it. I was the DP of most of the ones I did for myself or for other people. Mm -hmm. And I would, a lot of them, co-write with Carlos, my brother. And I was doing this, and I was going one after the other. And one day, Chivo 
he said, well, okay, so what now that you're doing these sh shows for TV, what's your, what's your goal? And he said it without being mean or anything. Yeah. He said, what's your goal? You, you want to get a job directing soap operas? And I got so offended, so <laughs> offended by Chivo, you know. And he says, I didn't know. I didn't mean it like, right. like that. Right. I got so offended, but I realized he was right, mm -hmm. that there was also so much I could do there, and I, that I wanted is to make films. Yeah. I was enjoying myself, learning a lot yeah. in those shows, but I, I thought it was the time to make a film. So I called Carlos and said, let's, let's, let's write a movie. And that was Solo con tu pareja, which I guess the... It's a literally translates to only with your partner, which I think it was the kind of warning that Mexico had for people to avoid getting HIV or AIDS. That and is correct. I guess you did it with partial funding from the Mexican government, but also making fun of them. And it did very well on the festival circuit because it's sort of a comedy dramedy about a guy who is a ladies man, but then pisses off somebody and is led to believe that he's contracted this. So... You're doing well on the festival circuit, but you know you cannot go back to Mexico, right? Well, yes, I, I pretty much burned my ships, <laughs> my, yeah, my bridges with the process. And I knew that I was in Toronto and it was very, very, very clear that going back to Mexico was going to be very difficult to put a film together because at that time all the funds were government controlled. There was not much of private investment and the private investment wasn't really cheap, yeah. bad movies. They couldn't care about any other kind of films. <laughs> and I was glad that I was going to go back to do, if be back to be an AD, that I didn't mind, actually. Also to do promos for the government. Mm -hmm. And if, if things well went really great to do commercials. Mm -hmm. And none of those options I really kind of like. Right. The, and that's when I, I was invited to, to LA to meet with some people. Right. And I was very lucky that Cindy Pollack saw Solo con tu pareja and liked it, liked it a lot. Right. And he offered me to start to develop one of the projects that he had in his company. So that, that feature did not pan out. But then there's another, I guess, another sort of, I don't know if it's an anthology series yeah. again, but yeah. I read it was a little rocky at first. Like the first day, I think you, you had to do over. But Alan Rickman was the guy who kind of saved the day. But anyway, you finally come away from that. And you get this Cable Ace Award, and people are starting to pay attention to you now. And I see you sign with Warner Brothers to make a movie called Addicted to Love. So how then does that not end up happening, but instead you end up doing a, a Little Princess? Yeah. Look, there was, yes. I mean, after Day's Award, there was not the great attention. There was, you know, at least it was better than before. She and I, we... We, we were the ugly duckings in the in the anthology, and we end up getting the awards and right. the A's. Uh, <laughs> uh, and we went that night. We went to celebrate. It was a Friday. I flew to Mexico City to see my son. And I said, okay, it's good because and my agent said, yes, on Monday, this is going to be great because phones will start ringing right. and stuff. And then there was the earthquake. <laughs> there was the earthquake. So, oh, uh, and, oh. and then so... It was completely, the news were completely, obviously right, buried. Right, right. And so that didn't happen. And I was developing Addicted to Love. But truth of the matter is, I could not attract actors. Mm -hmm. That was a problem. Yeah. You know, I could not attract actors, but I kept on going. The producers were amazing. The writer was amazing. And the studio, but it was not happening. And then Chibo, because I was kind of crashing in, in Chibo's house. Yeah. 
He said, hey, I received from my agent this, this, this screenplay. You, you should read it. You may like it. And that leads to you meeting Mark Johnson, the producer? Yeah, that leads to meet with Mark Johnson. And, and We should say for people listening, he, had, he was coming off of Rain Man, Field of Dreams. This was now a big deal. And he said, quote, this young, hip Mexican director walked into the room, and I thought to myself, why in the world would he want to do this movie about a little girl? I figured he probably needed a job. But after 20 minutes, I was convinced he was the right person to direct the movie. He was so articulate and analytical, and yet he wasn't interested in self-indulgent flourishes. So I guess you go to work on that, but the other big thing there was that you had a sympathetic executive in charge of the overseeing the production because it wasn't without hiccups, right? But now... This is Dee Dee Allen, who had edited Bonnie and Clyde, is now overseeing your work on your first American movie? Yeah, that is correct. I mean, I think it was the second week. So it was, for them, I received a lot of support, but they were a bit concerned. You know, <laughs> let's see what this Mexican guy does right. with, you know, it's a, and uh, also, I, Solo con tu pareja was a sex comedy. Right. And this is why this guy is going to do a movie with a bunch of girls, <laughs> you know? And is he going to be able to to shoot properly. And then I start doing my, you know, I start shooting and then I received this whole thing of saying that the material was not cutting together properly. So what I did is I went to the cutting room and I cut a piece of the film. Diddy Island saw it and said, have all my blessings. Don't, bo- don't bother him. Right. Don't bother him. <laughs> Says from that standpoint, don't bother you him. Okay. And she was amazing. She yeah. was amazing. What a legend else. So that movie was very well received. Variety's review, they said, quote, that rarest of creations, a children's film that plays equally well to kids and adults, close quote. But then you have to figure out how do you follow this. And the same year or maybe a year after A Little Princess came out was Baz Luhrmann, Romeo, Romeo and Juliet. And now they want to do a Dickens adaptation. They want to do Great Expectations. It sounds like you were resistant to the idea, but you got talked into it. Why was that? The wrong reasons. You know, first, Art Linson, the producer, is kind of it's very charming. is very bright. So much fun to hang around him. So we start chatting, and it was just, we start chatting. And then it was the possibility, you know, we were talking, and De Niro got, got involved in right. the project. And I was like, wow, this is so cool, Robert De Niro. You know, <laughs> going to the movie with Robert De Niro. And at that time, I was traveling around. I, I ran out of money. I knew that I have to do, I have to find a project. Right. I think the material, at, at the end, I think now in retrospect that the material, the original material was was good. It was funny, except I didn't have the handle on it. I'm probably another director would have been better. And I could not understand it. I could not really know how to go. And I, I kept on trying to overcompensate with visuals. Well, so that's because I want to ask you, you've said that up until through Great Expectations, you were focused on things like my films are all going to have a green color palette and things like that. And in the grand scheme of things, that's actually not what's the reason to focus on, obsess over things like that, right? But it wasn't until Great Expectations and the sort of rocky experience with that that you realized there are more important things to focus on? No, totally. Also, I think that an important aspect here is that after my first film and I that I landed kind of almost by accident in Hollywood, mm-hmm. I was kind of very insecure and very scared because also I have to provide. I, I need to to raise money all the yeah. time. You know, I was uh, I was a, I was a dad and yeah. also a lot of creative insecurities and a bunch of you know agents and executives told no because I would always come and say no I, I'm going to write it. 
you know, I like this project or this book, but I'm going to write it. And two executives, they wouldn't give me the project because they want to hire another writer. Right. <laughs> you know, and everybody told me, stop saying that you're a writer. Right. You will never get a job here if you think that you say that you're a writer. <laughs> and for many years, I became what I call a, a, a screenplay reader rather than generating my projects. Right, right. And that after great expectations, I felt the frustration of saying I end up doing some film. She always told me during the shoot, When things were, we were frustrated, right. he would come back, look at me and kind of very upset, says, always trust your first instinct. Because my first instinct was to say no. Right. So I, is, at the end of that, I said, I, I cannot keep on doing this. Right. You know, this is not who I am. It was a good lesson. It you was... know, it's the best, the best lesson. It says, I need to do stuff from my own standpoint. Right. And also, enough of trying to cover yourself with form. Right. You know, it's more about the theme. So soon after that, it sounds like was the beginning of what we now call the three amigos or not. Well, yeah, the three of you all coming together because there was already you and Guillermo. Yeah. But now Alejandro enters the picture because he wants you to look at a draft of Amores Peros. No, he entered way before. Oh, okay. Way before. He called me out of the blue. I knew who he was, that this guy doing commercials, and he was the voice of the DJ of this very, very, very famous radio radio station. And once he called me and said, hey, um, I want to go to LA and chat with you. He went, we got along. We've been in touch, and he did a short film. I gave my notes to the short mm -hmm. film. And it was in Amores Perros that he sent me the screenplay. Mm -hmm. I remember in that short, I said, Alejandro, I this is not a success. I think you're more talented than this. <laughs> I think that you have to focus more on the screenplay. Mm -hmm. And he started doing that, and he developed Amores Perros. He sent it to me. It was an amazing screenplay. Mm -hmm. And then we, he set up to do the film. And later on, he sent me the cut of his film. And I was, I was blown away by it. Uh, so much that I called Alejandro and said, can I show this to Guillermo del Toro? And I said, sure, please. <laughs> so I sent it to Guillermo. And this is Guillermo. He sees the film. He calls me and says, this is brilliant. Then he calls Alejandro and says, Alejandro, this is Guillermo del Toro. He says, oh, hi. He says, I'm taking a plane now to Mexico City. Prepare a room. I'm going to stay with you two or three days, and I'm going to recut your film. <laughs> recut a bunch out of it, right? And yeah, well, depends on who you ask. If you ask right. Alejandro, he says that uh, Guillermo only cut two minutes of the film. <laughs> If you ask Guillermo, it's 17 minutes. Well, and just to remind people, I think the public at large kind of realized that you three were a force to be reckoned with in 2006 when you had Children of Men, Guillermo had Pan's Labyrinth, Alejandro had Babel, and everybody started to pay more attention. And I know you guys had a production company, Cha Cha Cha, and you at one point were marketing yourselves as a, as a package to Universal, I think. Didn't you at one point have a deal with Universal? No, that Cha 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 was that thing. Is that It was a project in which we were going to have a company that was going to finance our films. Okay. Most of our films and maybe produce something, yeah. but we didn't want to be a producer. The problem started happening, it was two things. One is that because the way it was announced, all the school filmmakers that I love, suddenly I could not have like the normal conversation before because they would say, okay, why don't you finance my film? Oh, they all wanted something now. <laughs> no, it's just normal. You right, know, you're right, talking right, about, right. oh, well, if they, have a, if they have a mini studio, because right. that was what was per right. perceived, then that would be cool to work with them as opposed to. And 
suddenly it was more about that than about the creative yeah. conversation. Yeah. And also, I find that with Guillermo Alejandro and, and, and myself, our conversations that were about life, family, and film became about business and the business manager and who was going, you know, all of these things of setting up a company. Right. And that is fine when you do it individually, but when you're with friends, then the conversation yeah. becomes about that. And on top of that, then Guillermo decided to go to New Zealand. Right. <laughs> he you was going to do the Hobbit. He, he was going to do the Hobbit. And then we realized it didn't make any sense. Right. We actually produced two films. Yeah. We produced my brother's Rudy Cursi with Gael yeah, 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 yeah. Garcia Bernal and Diego Luna. And beautiful. Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, and also, I guess, a positive thing that came out of the... When you guys had reached this deal with, with Universal, the co-chair there was David Lindy, who now, with Roma, was a participant. But David has been part of my film since Ito Mama Tambien. Okay. I did Ito Mama Tambien with uh, Good Machine. That yes. was his company. Yes, yes, Then Children of Men. When I was shooting Children of Men, there was a change of administration at Universal, and he came as the head of Universal. Got it. And that's what, the reason that after Children of Men, he, at Universal, he organized this this deal with right, the right. Cha-Cha-Cha thing. And actually, after, he was the one who greenlit Gravity for Universal. Wow, okay. But then... He was gone by the He time was it... gone, and then uh, the, the film went into turn around to Warner Brothers. You know, and now he's back around he, with Roma. He, he's he, he yeah he did Roma. Well, let's just you know going to touch upon these these movies that we're we're now mentioning because each one of them is special. E2 Mama Tambien came out in two thousand one. Two horny boys take a road trip to the beach with an older girl. I read it was an idea that had been suggested ten years earlier by Chivo that you knew Diego Luna since he was a baby. Yeah, yeah. and in fact, in that movie, can you tell us who plays Diego's nanny? Yeah, the the character of Diego's nan is played by Libo, and Libo is the the person upon whom the character of Cleo is based off. In Roma, yeah. So that was her first introduction to people, and now she has a whole movie around her. But this was, I guess, sort of semi-autobiographical, a lot of handheld cameras, natural light. Another thing that I, I wanted to ask you, there, there's it's about getting to the water, right? At the end, we got to get to the beach, get to the water. Water seems to come up a lot with you, whether it's the ending of Gravity or the beginning of Roma or the beach in Roma. Is there any rhyme or reason to why water is such a presence in your movies? I'm sure there are other examples I'm leaving out. Probably there is. <laughs> <laughs> but just, uh, it's not like a, I must do it in each movie. Oh, no, there's not like a not thick a thing about, no, maybe, maybe I, I just have very little imagination. <laughs> no, it works. It, it works. Okay, so I heard E2 Mamatavien was rejected by Cannes, so then it gets into Venice, blows up, puts you on the map. Mexico rated it so that people 18 and under couldn't even see it, which caused such outrage among young Mexicans that it really actually was probably the best thing that ever happened to the movie because it got it a lot of uh, attention. But it also probably caused Mexico not to submit it for the foreign Oscar, so it wasn't. You and your brother still got nominated for original screenplay, but I guess it was while you were with that film at Toronto Film Festival that September 11th, 2001 happens, mm -hmm. and it was because of that that Children of Men was sort of born? Yeah, I mean, I have read this outline. It's like a one-page outline of the original book of mm -hmm. Children of Men. And I was intrigued by it 
but I was kind of not finding, you know, I, I said I didn't want just to do a science fiction film. And when September 11 happened, and you know, you know, it was that kind of a turning point of his, in, in history. And I was stranded in Toronto. And I really wanted to understand the themes that were going to shape this new century. Mm -hmm. And it's the moment that suddenly everything came together. You know, the children of men and all these thematic elements that I wanted to play with. But meanwhile, maybe because it was such a dystopian kind of story, it's hard to get people to finance it. So in the meantime, weirdly... Well, yeah, because we developed the first couple of drafts of the script and there was no much appetite for it. <laughs> right after 9-11, yeah. So instead, though, what's equally weird is that somebody who's seen Itu Mama Tambien thinks of you for Harry Potter. Like how they, I, I guess on the surface, there wouldn't seem to be that much in common going into the third Harry Potter. And yet I think you've said that you, I don't know if you could tell in the moment, but in hindsight, it makes more sense to you why J.K. Rowling and David Heyman, the producer of the films. Oh, I think that, yeah, not, it was offered to me. I didn't, didn't understand why. But yeah, for J.K. and David, it was a dual thing. It was as much y tu mamá también. Yeah as a little princess. Mm -hmm. And I guess that they just saw the merge of the two of them. Right. Because, yes, in one hand, there is the little princess from the standpoint of the fantasy element of it. And in the other hand, it's not so dissimilar because if Itomama Tambien is the journey of these two teenagers in their journey into adulthood, mm -hmm. in uh, Harry Potter and Azkaban, mm -hmm. the prisoner of Azkaban, is the transition between these children into their teenage years. Yeah, yeah. So there's something that yeah, kind of, of age, yeah. yeah. Is it true that you were very kind of resistant to accepting the Harry Potter gig, even though it would have paid nicely and whatever, until Guillermo had a little sit down with you? Yeah, but that was just pure arrogance because <laughs> I haven't read the books. I haven't seen the films. And I thought, okay, I, you know, a fantasy about some children wizards is <laughs> not my thing. And yes, and Guillermo, when I told that to Guillermo, he got very upset with me, and he <laughs> ordered me to go and read the books. And you did. And uh, the moment I read the books, I said, wow, this is... And there were only four books at that time. Right. And I read the books as well. This is, this is very interesting, because J.K. Rowling, yes, she created this amazing universe, but what she's talking about is about people, and it's, about, it's talking about the today. And she personally wanted you, right? You met yes. with her before you got the job. Oh, yeah. I think they wanted you from the very beginning, right? For the first, maybe even. I, that I don't know. I know that I, probably Terry Gilliam at some point was considered, no, I think. Is it tough, though, as somebody who's so fiercely independent to come into this when they've already made two installments, Chris Columbus, and now you have to, you know, it's not that you can't be creative within that, but there are certain things that you just have to observe as far as the way that it's been set up for you. The thing with that is that I was very clear that this was a beloved series already. Mm -hmm. With the two Chris Colombo films, this was really beloved already for the film goers. But on top of that, it was completely beloved by millions of readers. Mm -hmm. So I, I, it was clear that I could not just come in and start from scratch. You know, that I had to honor the universe that was already, that had been already put in place. But the thing is that Chris Columbus, and that's something that Chris hasn't been given credit enough, mm -hmm. he put together that universe. Mm -hmm. I mean, he had the amazing vision to have, have people like Stuart Craig to be the production designer. Mm -hmm. 
So that Hogwarts that we know and the representation of cinema of Hogwarts is something that was created by Chris Columbus with Stuart Craig. The other thing is this amazing cast. Yeah. You know, and it's most of this cast carried through the whole the whole series. Right. So there were so they were already two amazing things. You have the universe, you have the you have the actors. Right. And the material of Azkaban was really good. I really, really got it. I really understood the material. So it was about trying to turn it into my own, mm-hmm. but at the same time in the boundaries of what the Harry Potter world that was established was, you know? Well, and the New York Times said that yours was the first installment, quote, that actually looks and feels like a movie rather than a stage reading with special effects, close quote. But then they also said, quote, Quaron raised the series to a new level, close quote. I think, though, one of the most valuable things might have been, you know, in light of what you did after that, that was probably your first experience really with visual effects. Yeah, I have done little visual effects here and there in different films. Mm-hmm. The thing is this, I, yes, I, I didn't have experience in visual effects. It's filmmaking. You know, in filmmaking, it's about trying to solve the scene that you have in mind. You know, and it, it's so funny because the visual effects are mostly digital. And my brain still works very analog, in a very analogic mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. But the principles in many ways are the same. It's just, just the tools, how you achieve those principles are different. And it probably gave you confidence with things that you would then, I mean, because your next well, two movies. Are... I was learning a lot, I yeah. mean, in the in the process. And, and this is the thing, once that you learn one thing, it just grows yeah. like, like crazy. And yeah. Well, they wanted you to do another Harry Potter. You declined to do that. You were then attached to do Life of Pi. But then you get the chance now that people come around to wanting to do Children of Men finally. And... I guess I want to ask you, the first thing that I think about when I think about Children of Men, and I think a lot of people do, are these incredible one-take shots, the one with Julianne Moore in the where she gets shot in the car, and then the one with Clive Owen running through the refugee camp at the end, which famously includes that blood splatter on the lens. Can you just share how much work went into achieving those two in particular, you and Chivo making those happen? Yeah, well, it's, it's a collaboration with a huge, huge group of people, you know, different departments and... It's, it's a long process to try to achieve these things and trying to figure out the ways in which you can make this happen. Chibu was fantastic because when, with Children of Men, with the scene of the car, we could not figure out the way of actually achieving the, the shot. And there was a point in which everybody was deserting, you know? <laughs> and even Chibu said, no, we, I don't think we can make this happen. Right. And I know how to push the buttons of Chibu. <laughs> and I said, okay, I know how to do it in green screen. <laughs> so not, not, not a problem. We, we, we cannot make this happen. Right. I know how we can do this with a green screen on stage. And immediately Chiba said, I refuse. This <laughs> film cannot have that. You know, this is not a green screen film. That's so I said, there you go. Chiba says, okay, give me, give me a few days. <laughs> and then he went to do some research and, and okay. stuff. And, and he came up with this idea of because he found this system yeah. that apparently he had used in one commercial. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, okay, I can apply this. And we did this rig to shoot from the roof of the car. And how about the, I think George Richmond was the guy with the lens that caused the blood splatter. What was, what? Now, now, George Richmond is, um, and besides now being an amazing cinematographer, he was just the most extraordinary camera operator that I ever worked with. You know, that shot of, of the refugee camp is a really complicated shot. But not only that, you have the operator walking over rubble. Mm-hmm. 
with a lot of chaos going around. That was the set piece of the film, what they call the big set piece, yeah. the, the, the finale. And we had, I think, like 12 days to shoot it. By day 10, we have a roll camera. Jesus. Yeah, yeah. It was this amazing thing of by day three that you have in roll camera as the first executive arrives to the set. <laughs> by day seven, higher executive yeah. arrives. And pretty much by day 10, pretty much you have the head of the studio there, you know? <laughs> and, and they were always suggesting, well, we can get you a second unit to start doing shots. It says, no, there's not about shots. Yeah, but we can start doing coverage. And so the matter is that we were losing the location. Mm-hmm. And we could not pass those 12 days because of location and contracts and stuff. The moment that we were losing the light, we haven't achieved any shot the last day. And we're rolling camera and we're, everything's going great. And then there's this blood splatter on the lens that I see that lens gets co- almost completely covered. And instinctively, I just stupidly, <laughs> I, I just screamed, cut. But there was an explosion. Nobody heard me. And in that moment, the moment that I stayed, I stopped saying cut. Mm-hmm. I knew that I should not have not said it mm-hmm. because I was not going to have the chance to shoot it again. Right, right, right. I mean, no, I would have been complete. One of these happy accidents. No, yeah. And then we kept on going, and and yeah, it was uh, it was a happy accident. Wow. So that movie, if I have the correct info, cost seventy six million to make, and then I think it was not marketed in the way that you would have chosen, and it made seventy million. I know that that might have been disappointing to you. And then there were other reasons, though. Why for the next seven years did we not have another Alfonso Cuaron-directed movie? Well, partly is life. Right. The other is just gravity took five years. Right. You know, so pretty much there were two years. I'm not that prolific either. You know, I do a film every five years, except that gravity took five. And can you explain why? Because I think people think of it backwards. They think, I guess what I find really interesting was that what we would think of as probably post-production was actually the pre-production. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's this thing is that, 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 first of all, we need to figure out how to do it. Mm-hmm. And we test different systems. and Because originally you're they, thinking you write it with your son, you think it's going to be a small movie. I told that to Chivo. <laughs> you said, hey, Chivo, let's do this. I think we can shoot it in a few weeks. Right. You know, it's like just an astronaut against <laughs> the void. You know, one actor, we, we can do it very quickly. And it's very, it's, it's just a intimate film in space. And Chibo read the script and says, yes, yeah, sure. <laughs> and I said, yes, I think we can do it with conventional methods and let's see wires and stuff. And we start testing and it was just dreadful. <laughs> and that began the whole process of testing, experimenting, developing technology. And it really it was technology was, that did not exist before. That technology was not exist before or pieces of technology used for complete different things. Right put together into one single project. And in the course of developing all that, all the other pieces are still moving in and out. I know, you know, it's been spoken about before that at one point it was going to be Angelina Jolie or Natalie Portman. At one point it was going to be Robert Downey Jr. Finally, you end up with Bullock and Clooney, and they were really the last piece of the puzzle because you essentially, if I understand it correctly, you bring them in and you paste them on top of what was really like an animated movie. Yes, yeah, I mean, that's the principle. Although we have done the timings based upon the readings first. So at least we had something as, as a base. But the thing is that then one thing is a reading and another thing is a performance. Mm-hmm. And when once that we were performing, we needed to do a lot of adjustments. Mm-hmm. Or 
Sandra had to adjust herself to timings, and that was very challenging for Sandra. I think I'm so grateful with Sandra and George because they made this happen. Mm -hmm. I think it did not immediately go over well with the test screening audience or something. But then the testament of how well it ultimately went over was, I remembered hearing about this when it happened. There was a press conference and somebody in the media asked you if you could please describe, quote, the technical and even human difficulties, close quote, of filming in space. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. That was, that was, yeah, yeah. I remember this press conference and someone asked uh, what was about, and then my, my answer, I started giving an elaborated answer about <laughs> how, you know, I was okay, Chivo gets more seasick, you know, more motion sick, that Sandra was amazing, but that George was puking all the time. Yeah. Well, so when that movie, which really, I mean, on the surface level, yeah, it's this big epic 3D, but it's also dealing with very human things. And you talked about all the metaphors that the debris coming at her is adversity and the trouble communicating with home bases, just generally trouble communicating in life and the need to shed her suit in order to survive is the same as needing to, you know, shed her old skin in order to kind of have rebirth in her own life. But when it did as well critically, commercially, and then you win a Best Director Oscar, the first of, I think, this run of, I believe it was the first in the, of the four in five years for the Three Amigos, what did that mean to you? You know, it was after the long process of gravity that, again, it has a happy ending. Right. The process was not so easy. Right. Also, even before the film was released, there was not much trust in the film. Right. And then it started just getting momentum, and a lot of great people got involved in that at that point. Also, conveying the message of what the film was, and I think that the made a, a huge difference. So it was a huge relief. Right. That. <laughs> you know, it's, it's it's just that people talk about if you're happy. I always give this example with filmmaking. If a fox is being chased by the hounds for hours and hours and hours, and finally the fox gets away, right. is the fox happy? No, the fox is relieved, but it's far from happy. Right, right, right. So here we are five years after Gravity and starting in Venice again, and then for North Americans in Telluride, we have Roma, which is this completely different than anything you or anyone else has done movie that I've now seen, I think, everything that's come out this year, and it's not even close. It's my how much I love this movie compared to everything else. And I, I guess for you it's interesting because first film in, made in Mexico in 17 years and really the result of a conversation with Terry Fermo, right, from years and years and years ago, I think it's hilarious because what you were pitching him is so different from, you know, running by him as an idea is so different from what we are looking at today, right? Well, no, what Thierry was more about, I was I was talking about a project that I was considering, that was writing, that I have actually finished writing with Carlos, my brother, oh, okay. and and that I was... Uh, like a prehistoric drama. Yeah, yeah, yeah prehistoric <laughs> drama. And he was so uninterested about what I was talking about. Also, we were very drunk. There was yeah. a lot of mezcal involved. Right. And he kept insisting, no, you have to come back to do a, a film in Mexico. Stop that and... Get and personal I, again is what he's saying, yeah? Yeah, probably. I got pissed off at him, but <laughs> he was right. So you start thinking about your childhood and that maybe there's a story that is of broader interest. To, it's not just going to be interesting to you and your family, but what would be the reason that you wanted to tell No, this, this project, actually, it was after Children of Men that I it was inception of this, and I didn't have the guts. I was scared of doing this. Around the time of Thierry, Later on, I suddenly realized, wow, she's, he's right. And 
and suddenly Roma came back with this impulse and, and, and suddenly became this existential need. But no, I was not concerned about how it was going to be perceived or not perceived. It was just such a need that I have to do this film and the way that ends up being without, you know, not sharing the script, shooting in absolute continuity, yeah. shooting in the places where the actions took place originally, casting people that are like very physically, very similar mm-hmm. to the original people and and that they feel, felt the same. Actually, during the process, I spoke with Carlos, my brother, or mm-hmm. with Guillermo, and said, look, this is a film I have to do because it's a need, but it's too specific. It's about a specific family is in a specific city in a specific country so i don't think anybody will see it but i have to do it <laughs> why do you think you felt that you had to do it was there something that had happened in your life recently that made you more reflective or or something else yeah like 55 years of life is yeah. the, yeah, the, yeah. the thing that happened recently yeah. that's so you said wow it's like there's a moment in which you want to make sense of who you are and a lot of that has to do of who you were, you know, and it's kind of exploring and, and revisiting old wounds. Why did we end up with it being in black and white and with you, not Chiba, only the second time, I think the only other time was Harry Potter, that he didn't shoot one of your films. You're now the cinematographer and the editor and the director and the writer and the producer. I mean, but particularly the cinematography because it's beautifully done in black and white. But why was that? Why did Well, black and white was part of when, when 12 years ago, the film manifested for the first time, it already manifests with three pillars. One is that it was the story of Cleo, that memory was going to be the tool, and it was in black and white. So that was the DNA. I didn't question it. Mm-hmm. I don't, didn't touch that. Chivo was going to be the cinematographer, mm-hmm. but I kept on extending the pre-production process and then the production process, and it became a problem with the timings of Chivo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, something else. Yeah. yeah, and so we couldn't we couldn't make it happen. And this was maybe three weeks before I started shooting or two weeks before I started shooting. And pretty much it was Chivo who pushed me to do it. And, and was he available, like, if you had questions or things you wanted to run by him? Yes, he was super generous. And this happened more during the pre-production, yeah. the end of the pre-production and the first couple of weeks. And then kind of... This is the thing. I have been a cinematographer before. In the TV shows I yeah. used to do, I used to do my own cinematography. Yeah. You know, I directed and, and, and be my own DP. Or I DP for other people. Or even in different films, in Children of Men and Ito Mamá También, or even in Gravity, I've done the day or week right. because of uh, additional shoot or whatever. Right. It was more about owning it. And the first week I was still was not owning it. Right. And once that I own it, it was so much fun. And so we should, again, note that the financing for this movie, it's being distributed by Netflix, but in, in order to get it made, it came from participant David Lindy. Again, it's not a tiny, tiny budget, right? And so they had to really, he, of course, believes in you. He knows your work to do a black and white movie, non-English language, no household name stars. That was a pretty big not vote of confidence. That, not only that, is that nobody would see the screenplay. Oh, right. You would not show it to anybody. To anybody. And he says, well, the only thing I need is contractual. I need a screenplay. And he says, okay, but then it's going to be only for your eyes. Right. For David only. For, uh, for David only. And I deliver a screenplay in Spanish. And he doesn't <laughs> speak Spanish. So it was great. That's great. Well, I think it's kind of poetic that I think one of your closest friends, and I, I remember maybe it was in Telluride, you talked about this, 
one of your closest friends who's also a filmmaker is Paweł Polakowski, who's made another, well, we should my, say. My Polish brother. Your Polish brother, right. Yeah. He's thanked you in the credits of three of his films. You and Jonas thanked him in the credits of Desierto, which Jonas directed, you produced. You've been on festival juries together. You did the Criterion Collection closet together. And now this year, you have both made black and white films about your parents. And I just wonder, purely coincidental, were you in touch with each other? How did we end up with this? Well, we inform each other, but, but it's not like, like, hey, you have to do this, and right. I have to do, let's do this together. Right. We talk all the time, and Pavel is one of the of the people that I consider a very important collaborator. Yeah. And his opinion carries a lot of weight on me. This prehistoric film that I was telling you yeah. about, uh, one of the reasons I didn't do it is that he just, in his very polished way, says, oh, uh, probably it's good, I just don't get it. And then you <laughs> table it. It's not yeah. my thing. Right. And then, yeah, it's just... Uh, I cherish so much his opinion. I find that he's an amazing filmmaker, a great person, but also he's a very cultivated guy. Right. You know, right. so it's... Uh, That's great. By the way, Pavel has to thank you credit in Rome as well. Does he as well? I okay, think, I'll have to... So, yeah. so you go back to kind of excavate your childhood. You interview Lebo. Now you go to set with a lot of people who have never acted before. And this was a 108-day shoot, longer than any other one of your career. Is that because for these folks who have not acted before, you wanted to make it possible for them to do it in sequence and without a script so that they're reacting. I mean, the thing that's most amazing is for people who have seen the film, the the miscarriage scene, Yalitza didn't know what was coming out. She had yeah. to react in the moment. But that was the same. It was not only Yalitza, it was the whole crew. Yeah. But the shooting in continuity was had nothing to do with the with the non-experiment actors, the the the, the so-called non-professional actors. It was more the process. It was the process of discovery of everyone, you know, of trying to find moments of truthfulness, moments that are real, and to have the patience to find those moments. Right. Your mom and Lebo, I believe, both visited the set while you were making the film. What was that like? Well, of course, being my mom and Lebo didn't warn us that they were coming. <laughs> so it suddenly was like, oh, they had, here they are. And the thing is that they came in a moment that was uncomfortable for me because I thought it was going to be uncomfortable for them. Right. Because the scene in which Sophia is telling the kids that the father's not coming for Christmas and Cleo tells Sophia that she's pregnant. And yeah, after I was shooting, I went to visit the video seats just to see how they were doing. And there was Libo crying. And I said, is that okay? Is there, uh, did I cross any boundary? You, you prefer if we don't talk about this and I can change, you know, I, I don't need to, to, to do this if, I mean, I'm not going to do it if it's uncomfortable. And no, she was crying not because of her circumstance. She was crying because she was concerned about the children. Right. And then I believe, sadly, did you, you lost your mom this year? Yeah. She did see the film? She saw a cut, not the, final, okay. not the final thing, but she saw a cut. That's great. A big topic of discussion, as you know as well as anybody right now, is theatrical, right? Mm -hmm. It's important to you to people see this movie on a big screen. That was part of your deal with Netflix when you went there. I guess the question I just have is, because you're in, you're in the unique position to answer this, how many days should a film play in theaters and in how many theaters for it to really be described as a theatrically released film? Look, I don't know about how, I don't think there's a rule of thumb about how many days and how many theaters. I just know that the theatrical release of Roma worldwide probably is, is wider than what I would have got in a conventional way for a black and white film in, in, in Mexican film in Spanish. Right. Just to say that in the last few years, probably one of the most 
successful global releases of a foreign film has been Fantastic Woman. Mm-hmm. And probably we have the same theaters or more than Fantastic Woman. Right. I don't know the, the, the number. I think I would always advocate for the theatrical experience. Right. It's a fundamental experience in, in cinema. You know, I made a film in 65 mil with Atmos Sound. Right. Saying so, I also know that my film is going to live for way longer in digital formats. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think that the important thing is to find the right balance. Right. You know, it's not, it's not one versus the other. I think that the two models can be compatible. Right now, we've been three weeks into a release and we're going to keep on playing in theaters. And I, I really believe that the people who care about the theatrical experience will keep on visiting theaters even if the film is in the platform. Right. Last question. Again, four of the last five years, a Mexican filmmaker, one of the three amigos, has won a, a directing Oscar. Could be five and six after this year. Donald Trump has said Mexico is not sending their best. It doesn't seem to be borne out by the reality here in, in this industry. If you could send any message to him at a time when we're all obviously seeing a lot of divisiveness over immigration and the border and all of this, what would you say to him? Is it worth saying anything to him? <laughs> I mean, do you really think that he would get it? You know, it's Donald Trump. Yeah. <laughs> He's not going to change his opinions. No, and... no. Well, maybe you should see Roma. No, 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 no. Maybe he should not. Right. <laughs> Thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.